0: What got you there, what got you, what got, got you there with Shonda As we approach the end of 2021, it's fitting that we look back at some of the best speakers we've had here on What Got You There. And each of them has been someone who's who's risen to prominence in their field and they've made a mark for themselves and their field. And we've seen so much wisdom distilled into bite-sized pieces. So instead of doing a, a top 10 or even a top 20. I felt it much more important to show how the wisdom uh, acquired by each one of these people is interconnected and how we see their lessons in in context with one another. And so you'll find me jumping from speaker to speaker, uh, pulling on the common threads and the subjects that that we've discussed over the past year on the show. So stay tuned. But as we close out another year, uh, I just need to thank you all. Everyone who's listened, who's shared, who's reached out, connected with me. It means the world to me that you lend time with with your ears or your eyes, listen, watching, sharing, and connecting with all of this. Uh, I truly love learning from others and then distilling down, hopefully, and synthesizing that wisdom and being able to share it with others. So when you guys are able to connect with me, it just means the world. So from the bottom of my heart, I just can't thank you enough for this past year, which turned out to be the best year thus far for the Walk You There podcast. And I'm really looking forward to an exciting next year in 2022. So as always, the journey of learning begins with curiosity and who better than Grant Williams when it comes to that. And so Grant's curiosity about others begins with three simple questions. And that's how do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? And what experiences have brought you to those conclusions?
1: The fact that, you know, there are, there are things you, you can be taught, but there are things you can't be taught, but you can learn. And that's What I'm interested in is is things that no one can teach you, but if you listen to them tell their stories, you can pull the threads out of that yourself. And, And that's where the real timeless wisdom is, that you can apply to so many situations in your life rather than a moment in time.
0: In one go, Grant has distilled the very humble spirit behind human curiosity most people fail to learn once they hit adulthood. And the meaning here is to always listen because that's when the real impact happens. When we open up our minds and allow everyone, and everything to be a teacher, that is when the real learning begins. And this is not too far from Chris Sparks himself on Curiosity. And he takes just a wide-eyed and interest in other people that he encounters. Every opportunity for him is a learning experience. I
2: think just a, a fun posture to take through life is that every person that I meet every article that I read has something to teach me and it's my job to undercover what to uncover what is this person's superpower or what experience has this person have that I'm never going to have but perhaps I can glean something through it that if I can maintain this sense of curiosity that life has infinite depth well I will infinitely learn and grow and be able to continually expand my capabilities. So when you're asking for who would I want to work under, I would want to work under anyone who is the best at their craft. So I look at anything from, I'm meeting I'm at a really nice restaurant. How do the chefs coordinate so that they minimize uh, movement so that they can create an experience that's excellent but also quick right? It's this perfection of process. And what are the types of things that they do to communicate or how do they prep ahead of time so that when things got busy, they didn't get
0: overwhelmed. In a jam-packed two minutes by William Green, he synthesizes down some of the keys to the all-time greats within investing. And some of these are independence of mind, playing games that they can win, taking a simple idea and taking it
3: seriously. But let's hear William uh, describe these. I think what you're seeing with all of these investors is this independence of mind where they're just, they're looking around at what works, at where they can get the best information. They're, they're trying to play games that they can win, that where they have an advantage and avoid games where they're going to lose. So you have Buffett famously said, how, um, how, do, you, um, how do you beat Bobby, how do you beat Bobby Fisher? And he said, well, play him at anything other than chess. And so so they have this very rational, very pragmatic way of thinking about life. Munger says again and again that he studies what works and what doesn't work. And so for someone like me, who's trying to figure out the code, who's trying to grope his way through the fog of life, these guys provide unbelievable clues about what works and what doesn't work. And so what I was trying to figure out is what, how how do I reverse engineer these people and then apply certain things in my life, and and so something like just that that simple idea from Ed Thorpe that you want to avoid catastrophe if you can stay in the game and survive the dip, survive a period like like this pandemic, you're much more likely to win and and then if you if you stick with games where you have an advantage and then if you're a continuous learner like buffett so you're just constantly constantly deepening your knowledge of things that you're good at and that you understand games where you can win the, the, some of these principles they they're so simple but when you combine a bunch of these different principles and you take take a simple idea and take it seriously the cumulative effect is actually kind of overwhelming
0: Many times, it, it isn't enough just to absorb. The key thing to do is reflect and reflection on, on what you've done to look back and, and learn and gain from it. That's the key of the champions. And that's exactly what James Kerr reminds us of in his interview. You know,
4: the story you tell becomes the story that other people tell about you. Mm-hmm. If you can really understand, you know, in programming terms, it's, it's garbage in, garbage out, and the opposite. If you're putting a quality story in at the front end for you as an individual, any organism, um, for you as an, an individual, or for any team or for any organisation, if you get that story right, people will live into that story. They will align around that story, and that story becomes true more often than not. Hmm. And uh, and so that's really what I try to do is is try to, in my books, try to, you know, give people access to a more powerful story to live by, to perform by. Uh, and with teams, really, it's, it's kind of, well, what's your particular story? Why this team? Why this group? Why now? And if you can ask those questions, and a lot of the time we get not distracted, but we get focused on our day job, you know, passing and tackling and making phone calls or whatever that happens to me, making podcasts, whatever that is, the technical side of it. But we forget to reflect and we forget how powerful Um, reflection is in terms of learning and reframing our experience. Um, And if you're able to reflect and reevaluate and reframe and kind of reflect and remind yourself of of why it matters, you know, that's revolutionary. You know, that really changes hearts and minds and lives, I think. And, And so that's the kind of impact I hope to make in any kind of piece of work that I do. If one group is doing great things people will look to see what that group is doing. And so actually you can affect quite significant culture change with an organization, one team at a time. You create centers of excellence. You create your kind of A team and then you create that kind of culture and then you prove within the organization that that's how we roll now. And this is why, because you see their sales numbers are huge or they're, or they're, or whatever it is. Um, and so you model... Internally, you model the kind of be- the behavior that you want on a sort of cellular level and and try to get to that tipping point where it becomes kind of viral if you like and and you create heroes and you reward and recognize and you tell that story and and you communicate and connect around that kind of thing. um I think you know it can be very easy to to play that high level game that purposeful visionary. <clears throat> Commanders' intent, da-da-da. But, of course, real change happens bit by bit, step by step. So what is the mindset that you, that's required within an organisation? What's the collective mindset, the individual and collective mindset? And, and that is, I think, best expressed by that idea of marginal gains. Um, the San Antonio Spurs call it pounding the rock. Um, it's sort of the, the stonecutter's creed um you know take a piece of marble take a hammer and a chisel and start chipping away nothing will happen um 100 blow 50 blows 75 blows 100th blow it breaks on i think the story is on the 101st blow but it wasn't the 101st blow that did it. it was all the blows that led up to that it was that continual application of small moments of pressure um that leads to breakthrough results um And that's a truism. That's a truism in life. You know, if you want to get good at something, you need to do your 10,000 hours. You know, if you want to move anything, very few things move all at once. They move by that constant application of pressure. And the good news is that's something we can control. That becomes a decision that we make all day, every day. You know, do I when i'm when i'm cooking do i do i to take a domestic example when i'm cooking do i um let all the mess pile up or like a good cook a good chef do i put the ingredients back where they belong at every stage of the way a small marginal gain but the difference is about half an hour's worth of doing the dishes and cleaning up after the meal but you've done it at the time you know if if you're the boss of an organization and you walk past a crisp packet or some you know some rubbish on the floor and you don't pick it up right uh neither will anyone else but that small marginal gains gesture uh will signal and the ripples go outwards so the the the, the devil is in the detail you know the small stuff matters um those small incremental moments matter um Sean Fitzpatrick a former All Blacks captain said you know excellence is modest improvement consistently done and i love that line i think it's a genius line that 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 it's it's the modest improvement you don't have to do it all at once in fact you can't do it all at once but the way we get better at something the way we grow is by trying stuff out experimenting learning doing it again doing it again doing it again and 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 it's that um, and i, I It's something that we can control. On a human level, it's something that we can control. We can go, do I walk past that pile of rubbish or do I pick it up? Um, The phrase I use came from one of the players. It's just champions do extra. Hmm. Um, uh, Brad Thorne's mantra, um, champions do extra. It's that little bit extra that you do all the time. You know, do you do an extra draft of a book? Do you follow up that email you know, a lot of the time, communication, take communication. A lot of the time we send an email and we think we've communicated. No, we haven't. We just send an email. That's not communication. You know, in mission command, in the military sense, they, they have, a, have, a, have a, a phrase that's two up and two down. You know, do you know what's expected of you from two, two ranks up? And do people down from you know what's, what you expect two ranks down? And, and in that way, you've completely joined an organisation. So are you taking responsibility for the for the reception of your communication, not just for the delegation of it? Yeah. And that's an entirely different mindset. Yeah. It's an entirely different level of responsibility and of detail to, to what you're doing around here. It means you own that result. And and that occurs metaphorically in a in, or as a metaphor for it occurs in a in a hundred different ways a day. And cumulatively, those 100 different ways of day multiplied by however many people in your team or your organization. That's, that's you know, if you've got 30 people in a, in a player group, for instance, and they do 100 things a little bit extra a day, 3,000 micro improvements that's happened in that environment. And that's massive. That's how teams grow. That's how teams who, who, who might be underfunded or, or underrated really can lift their game. Um, and take it to the next level.
0: While well, we learn from the winner's attitude from James Kerr as he highlights exactly what sets the champions bar so high and so shows us how winners are made, another very special guest is Howard Marks, and he focuses on turning the the gaze inward. Howard really has been one of the most foundational people in terms of shaping my view in terms of risk and investing. So it was just such an honor for me to be able to talk to him, but, but Mark Mark's warns warns us of the pitfalls we often get into by following others blindly and not being firm on our own path. It reminds me very much of the great martial artist Bruce Lee, um, who, who talks about being an artist of life
5: and that you need to create your own masterpiece. First of all, I certainly didn't know who I was in the sixties or the seventies and you, f- you figure it out after a while, you know, and uh, you know, if, if in, if in the eighties, you would have said to me, uh, what are you good at? I would have said, uh, I'm, I'm good at being analytical and, and uh, you know, quantitative analysis. And, uh, you know, I learned in the 90s and certainly the, this century that what I was really good at uh, was, was more qualitative and conceptual. And seeing the patterns in the market, uh, understanding uh, concepts and theories and uh, especially new, new products uh, and concepts. As they evolved, as the market evolved, uh, and and uh, communicating those things, writing, speaking, uh, speaking with clients, and uh, and and then leadership and leading the organization. M- millions of people are analytically, quantitatively uh, uh, capable, numerate, uh, but um, I, I think that and I was fine at that, but I think that these latter things, which are more qualitative and conceptual, uh, w- were really, uh, my, my strength. And, you know, there's a, my favorite quote of all is from an English writer called Christopher Morley. And I've never used this in a memo because it's never been appropriate, but he said, there's only one success to be able to live your life your way. Um, which is a great concept, but it, you know, th- the key for most people is to figure out what their way is, you know, and you have to, you have to see what really are your strengths and your weaknesses and what it is that will make you happy and what will make you unhappy. Obviously, what a terrible idea it is to to choose your career because it's the one everybody else is choosing. Number one, it'll be crowded and competitive. And number two, it may not be satisfactory to you. So I always say to kids, your career you choose should uh, play to your strengths, and avoid your weaknesses and it should be the thing that will make you the happiest. Uh, we only get one life as far as I know and what a mistake it is to squander it on something that doesn't play to your strength and make you happy and something which is chosen just because it will make you the most money unless that's the thing that'll make you happy. Uh, but I mean that's, that's, that's my most important piece of advice.
0: Howard Marx's reflection is filled with wisdom. And that's also close to the practical philosophy that Chris Spark speaks of. Practicing this curiosity and learning from others at every chance we get. And Chris has a way to dissect everything he learns. This distilling down the lessons we're learning from others uh, with what we're reading and even our own experiences. That really has been foundational for my own path and my learning journey. It's why I do such extensive book recaps um, and release the, the distillation once a month, really studying someone who I admire and can learn from. But let's hear from Chris uh, in his own words.
2: That it comes back to treating everything as a learning opportunity. Um, I work with a lot of people who make very high stakes decisions. I think a lot of what holds us back in our lives in our trajectory is our ability to make good decisions. And the same thing is true in poker, right? If we're treating every decision as an opportunity to make a perfect decision, every decision can be an opportunity to improve our decision-making process. So it's critical while things are still fresh for me after a session to perform a post-mortem. What were the things that went well? What were the things I would like to have done differently? What am I learning for next time? That's the basic format of any retrospective. What went well? What didn't go so well? What did I learn? So I'm going to look at, well, these are the things that I did that I want to do more of. Things that seem to work. Strategies that are worth... Uh, capitalizing on, things that seem like I have a good handle of what's going on. I understand the situation. Um, I want to look at any mistakes that I made. These aren't necessarily the biggest hands that I played. It could be missed opportunities to get involved. This could be, I didn't need to put so much in there. It's going to be, I didn't really understand what I was doing. I don't think my thought process right there, it worked out well for me, but I don't, I don't think I understand the situation on a high level because these are all just potential opportunities for me to improve. These are different dimensions to explore. And I so said, the most important thing is I want to come out of every session with something that's actionable, something that I'm going to do differently next time. Even if it's just, I want to be extra aware of this, like, okay, when I, Played against this one guy and he was playing really aggressively. I noticed it threw me off my game and I started to try to. I started over focusing him on him. That's something that I don't want to encourage. So I want to be extra aware next time that someone feels like they're playing more aggressively against me. That I don't want to fall into that trap of over focusing on them. Right. It's like every every session that I have is I'm getting a little bit better, a little bit better.
0: At this point, we we feel it only fitting to pull up the quote by Grant Williams. After all, we are going into this world, into the future blind, and the wisdom shared by these people can help shine light on our actions, just even a little bit at a time. And going into the unknown to discover what we're all capable of makes me think of the the great Joseph Campbell quote, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. It's one of my favorite quotes of all time, but let's hear what Grant has to say about this.
1: It's, it's so funny, Sean, because um, you, I don't, I, I'm not sure that you recognise them at the time. I, I think sometimes you do. You have you know, big decisions to make, but oftentimes it, it's life comes at you fast and things happen to you. <clears throat> and, and what I've what I've found over the years is, is it's it's great to have a plan and it's great to have somewhere you want to be and a, and, a, and a career path you want to follow. But in the same way, it's very dangerous because I think if you get if you get absolutely set on that and an intent on following that course. You, of course, you can be blind to things that come along um, that could take you in a completely different direction. When I think of the
0: process of entering the unknown and our journey of self-discovery, I think the wisdom shared to me by Matthew Berry. And Matthew emphasizes that when he is himself every single time, despite his shortcomings, he isn't just the best. He is the only Matthew Barry there can be. And this makes me think of of the great Naval Ravikant line, escape competition through authenticity. No one can beat you at being you. I think this is one of the things that's so important, especially for people early, is be you. Be the best you because you are the only one who can do that. Uh, And let's hear Matthew on this.
2: Like I'm the best in the world at being Matthew Barry. And I focused on just trying to be the best Matthew Barry I can be. And so uh, when I say, you know, like when I talk about tennis, right, same thing. It's like there were kids that were bigger than me, faster than me, that had more powerful serves. But the I knew like the hand I was dealt was that I have really good hand-eye coordination and I'm, I can be really consistent. And so again, I knew that I could, I could hit the same forehand 22 times, 25 times, 27 times in a row, you know? And so I just, I tried to do that, you know? And, most people at that time when I played, they were serving volley guys, like you serve and you rush the net. I'm not good enough to do that. I wasn't fast enough to get to the net. So I would just serve it and then stay back because I knew that even though my way would take longer, my way would be more successful for me.
0: We've heard from James Kerr, Chris Sparks, Howard Marks, Grant Williams, and now Matthew Berry. And each time they throw new light on how to be curious, how to learn from others, how to introspect and evaluate, how to reflect. But the thing is, this doesn't really cover the real crux of it which Randall Stutman believes is distilling the wisdom out of the learning. I mean, sure, we, we've we heard hundreds of stories from people uh, on the show alone, and we've got wisdom through the ages. But the key point, Stutman says, is, is in finding those insights that transform and decide to keep in our own lives. So how do we distill down and then act on that wisdom? Well, let's take a look.
6: All that interesting about routines, you know, I have, I have a couple of things that I do in particular that I've learned from other leaders, um, the, the first thing that I do is I don't start the day um, processing um, information or responding to it. <clears throat> so the, the cadence, once you get into it, uh, when you start processing right away is you stay there, um, you stay in that rhythm. And so I, I make it a habit, um, a not to allow my phone anywhere near me uh, when I sleep. And then it's not there when I wake up. So I go about my morning for a little while, not more than about 30 minutes or so before I ever engage emails or texts or anything else. And so that kind of creates, and I start on a uh, uh, start on productivity. I start being productive um, all the way from the beginning. So that that's a, I guess that's a routine. Um, What else do I do Um, at the end of the day? um, If I've actually listened to things or read things, which is most days, or I've engaged other people in some way and I've taken notes, I distill those notes down to key insights um, and, uh, and then I usually place those insights someplace, uh, in one of my journals. Um, and some days I don't have any insights. It doesn't mean I don't have notes, but that's just the way it goes. Um, uh, other, other days I, I, you know, it takes me a little bit of time to be able to distill those and, and put those in the right places and so forth. So I can review them later. Um, those would probably be the only really two routines that I, I probably would say I'm religious about. Um, after that, the, the day is what the day is. Um, um, I try to, uh, throughout the day, um, create enough white space so I can actually move from uh, uh, conversation to conversation because that's what I'm doing most days is having conversations. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's not easy to make the transitions quickly enough, fast enough, in order to really focus on the next conversation. Making fast transitions is really important. Uh, at least in my view. So I guess another thing that I do is um, uh, I kind of try to find segues or transition points. So I don't move exactly from one conversation to another conversation, uh, at least instantaneously. Um, And as much of that white space that I can create, um, that's a good thing. Um, And I try to do that fairly um, uh, purposefully all day long um i think that's where i am i don't think i have any other routines
4: no no
0: there's plenty to hit on here i'd love to jump into your distillation of knowledge and we're hoping we can walk away from this conversation with some wisdom and i know that's a focus for you really distilling things down to wisdom what is that actual process you you mentioned you're coming across things throughout the day is that going just in one specific journal or notebook how do you organize that
6: so, so it's a behavior that we actually talk about in Admired Leadership around making personal change. And it's a, it's one that's really, really changes a lot of things for people. And it certainly changed me a long time ago when I first uncovered it in a variety of leaders. And I thought, why don't I do this? And I started doing it and it's just been amazing. So so the idea goes like this. So first of all, if you're somebody that's a, a learning machine, like a lot of us wanna be and, and aspire to be, um, you're you're constantly gathering information, data. You're you're trying to gather new knowledge all day long. Um, uh, you're reading things. You're listening to podcasts. You're you're talking to people. You're 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 hearing a quote. Uh, you're, all those things. And and if you're like me, if you go to some presentation, um, you take eight pages of notes. I mean, you know, it's not like somebody says only one smart thing. They say lots of smart things. And, and so you're writing all those things down. The, the problem is what most people do is they collect all those notes and they have no ability to use any of that knowledge or wisdom at all, because all those do, all those notes do is collect either some dust in, in a file cabinet or in a folder, or, or they just simply stay buried and hidden in, inside your phone uh, or inside your laptop. So, so the key is first of all, to, to understand that that collecting information is just the first step, um, and and if you're good and you, you spend a lot of time doing it, and and I have a lot of colleagues that are that are really good at make, taking better notes than I do, um, they you know you have a lot of it um, um, all day long every day, um, but then the next step is to be able to distill it down to to make it and look and say what are the real insights, what's the wisdom here, um, is there any um, is there anything I want to really keep. Um, and and what is it? And can I re-articulate it um, in a way where I can remember it? And so now you're in, engaged in the distilling process where you're, you're taking eight pages, 10 pages, 20 pages of, of notes and, and scribbles, and you're moving it to not many things. Um, two, three, four sentences in many cases. It's rare that, that I would actually distill something and, and grab a whole page of something. That would be really unusual. I want the the process to to, cur- to create a kernel of what's the insight, what's the thing that I want to want to eventually remember, and then initially uh, the way that I started um, is you put it in one spot. But then what you realize is that's first of all that that journal grows re- re- pretty fast um, if in, in, unless you're not an active learner. Um, but second, then it doesn't it doesn't enable you to um, to access the things that you really want because you got to go searching for them. So so now after a couple of Several decades of doing this, uh, I have about thirty-six different journals. Where if I get a nugget around, you know, how people give feedback, then it goes into my feedback journal. If I get a nugget uh, around some just really interesting uh, wordage, diction, uh, just some language that I really think a metaphor that I think is cool, it goes it goes into my into my language journal, and and so forth and so on. Stories I collect stories that I think are really powerful. But there's a lot of things that other people can bring to you that all of a sudden shake you up. Like, I remember when um, I first had the epiphany and you know, another aha for me, that success in life is really about how many people you matter to. Because I always thought success in life was about having influence. And that's the particular kind of influence. But, um, you know, the idea that, you know, in what relationships, like who really matters, um, who do you really matter to and, and who really matters to you? And that at the end of your life, that you're going to judge yourself, because I've interviewed lots of people at the end of their lives, by the way, and that you're going to judge yourself not by, you know, what strategies, what decisions, you know, what, but by the quality of the relationships that you still have where you matter to those people. And I don't mean in terms of just had you had influence on them. Again, that's how I always saw it before. But, but that right now, this moment, you know, you're important to those people because of who you are and what you are and how you engage them. And, 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 and when I had that idea around that, that's what success is, um, it changed a lot of things for me. Now, that's all of a sudden, that's something I've, I've been able to keep for ever since I, I decided that really is what success is.
0: And now we arrive at a topic most people by default use when it comes to defining success, and that's passion and purpose. And both are made the holy grail of achievement by pretty much anyone of note. Yet not everyone understands them or uses them well in their own lives. So how do we understand passion? How do we use it well? How do we set ourselves up for, for meeting our
7: life and our purpose? Let's hear what Stephen Kotler has to say about that. Human beings are essentially motivated by two things. Extrinsic motivators, external to the self. So money, sex, fame, right? Things you're going out trying to get food, right? Right or internal motivators, intrinsic motivators, curiosity. I want to go check something out. Um, Passion, oh my God, I can't stop thinking about this, right? Um, Purpose, oh my God, I have to feed the hungry, whatever. These are big intrinsic motivators. And it turns out, there are about five core intrinsic motivators and the way the biology is designed to work is curiosity is essentially the most basic fuel of motivation, right? I am curious. About something. Passion is essentially when you, if you can identify four or five or 10 things you're curious about and find a place that three or four or five of them really intersect, that's a lot of energy. When five or six of your major curiosities intersect at one point on one thing, that's the seed kernel of passion. You cultivate that over time and couple to it to a cause greater than yourself. Now you've got purpose. Once you have purpose, by the way, what do you need next? Autonomies, the freedom to pursue your purpose, right? And once you have that, what do you need? Mastery, the skills to get better and pursue your purpose. And that's the stack. That's how biology is actually designed. The clearest lessons from my time are one, we are all capable of so much more than we know. Two, human potential invisible, especially to ourselves. Human capability is an emergent property. It emerges when we push our skills and use our skills to the utmost again and again and again. So I don't blame you as my point. All I'm saying is you're probably capable of so much more than you know, almost to the T, with very few exceptions of everybody I've encountered in thousands of people who have tackled these kinds of challenges and succeeded against them, almost none of them started out extraordinary people they hmm. all did extraordinary things they all started out just like you and me they had a slightly bigger vision maybe or a slightly bigger dream and they went at it and went at it and went at it and discovered small I impossible after small I impossible after small
0: so the great astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson um on his quest for curiosity Um, some of the answers he provided in his interview were just incredible, but his search to understand the cosmos and how the universe works has also led him to many insights and wisdom that he shared. And one of them, and maybe the most important I felt was his emphasis on getting out of the way of curiosity.
1: Yeah. So that question has assumptions that you start out life, not curious, and that somebody then brings that enlightenment to you or opens your eyes to it. But my... Understanding of what it is to be human tells me differently. It says that as children, we are born curious. So you don't need anybody to spark curiosity. You need people to get out of their way as they express their curiosity. And if you stay out of their way, even through middle school and high school, they may just retain that curiosity and wonder into adulthood. And if they do, we call them scientists.
0: And yet, all the philosophy in the world is pointless if it doesn't transform your mind or your mindset. And Jack Schwager explains why that is an important facet of learning: the ability to change our deepest-held assumptions.
8: I'm, yeah, I, I, I like to believe that I am willing to change my mind. I do, you know, I'm trying to think of examples. Um, yeah, but if I have evidence that contradicts, you know, contradicts what I believe, I'd like to think that I'm, I'm willing to. To accept that, you know, as uh, as okay, you know, this I I had this wrong, um, you know. I I'd like to believe that, you know. I I feel I'm somebody who who will go by evidence, not by not by what I want it to be true. In fact, one of the of the of the scores of trading lessons that I have in my books, um, and it doesn't. But one of the things that's come up, one of the came up in one of the interviews, and I'm paraphrasing. The person said, it, you know, it's, to be a good trader. You have to do, um, you have to react to what you know to be true, not what you want to be true. And um, and the idea there being that, you know, if you're really good at this at the game of trading uh, and you have lots of experience, there'll be situations where your experience tells you that something the market is more likely to go in a way or maybe your position is wrong. Now, maybe... And if you're holding the opposite position, it's not what you want to believe, but you have to go with what you, as he said, what you know to be true, not what you want to be true. And uh, and I'd like to think that I have that philosophy just in general.
0: There's so much we hold on to, our perceptions, our fears, our anxieties, and, you know, baggage from the past, all of which have a tight grip on our minds and our hearts, not, not allowing us to be fully involved in the present. And this is where J.P. O'Brien's wisdom comes in the importance of surrendering fully. He also sheds some light on what it means to find a core purpose and how he found his own.
9: You know, was, uh, I think it was, I was uh, listening to Sam Harris the other day and he said it kind of nicely, so I'll borrow some of his words. Um, he said, you know, uh, how many times in our life we've been set up with fear about the future or uh, fear or hope. And both those things look actually very the same, which is they they create this sort of, um, feeling of like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Or I hope this happens. And the idea of being able to surrender, just truly enjoy where you are this second, like right this minute. Because if you look back, you probably don't remember those fears that much. Or they at the time, they were significant. But if you look back now, you're like, well, most of those have forgotten about them, right? Or even those hopes. Like I guess I went through the experience and now all of a sudden I'm here. So to me, surrendering is about kind of full acceptance, it doesn't mean that you're like super happy about everything, right? It doesn't mean that you're upset about everything. It just means like, wow, that's amazing. It's like watching a great movie and you're like, I had no idea that was going to happen. That's amazing. Right? You don't really put emotion behind it. So if we can kind of go into life and accept what's actually showing up, it doesn't mean we don't act or react or or start to be proactive in, in what we're deciding to do next. It just means that we truly accept what's there and be present. Um, that that's what it means to kind of accept and surrender. Yeah. So I did a, um, I went down something I call now core purpose search, and this was about uh, you know about eight years ago. Um, listen, my my life before that was 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 really good, right? I, I talk about it as I was good at playing the choose your own adventure game. You know, I I was able to uh, you know get into a great college, pick an engineering degree, aerospace mechanical engineering degree. Do really well in that, you know, just, you know, graduated distinction, got an amazing job with Anders Consulting, was this, you know, and I was just, I could do these things. I was able to um, pick the right path, if you will, right? It was the choose your own adventure book. You want to marry the maiden, go to page 52. You want to slay the dragon, go to page 80, right? And I, and I was good at that game. Um, but when I looked back, I didn't feel like I was actually creating any of that. I was reacting to what was showing up. And so something would show up, and I'd be like, "Oh, I'm going to go this way. or I'm going to go that way." Um, about eight years ago is when I went down, and I said, "Hey, listen, I really want to figure out uh, what my purpose in life was, and or is." And um, and so for me, when I'm full send, my purpose is to unleash the greatness of the people around me. And so those are just words, but that to me, those are very, very motivational, like super core deep inside me. And what that means is, I'm full send when I have an amazing group of people around me that are all fired up. That are living a purposeful life, that are are basically chasing, you know, what that means, and doing a full send with the work that they're doing and the people around them, uh, and inevitably, though, that's around solving and working on big, messy problems uh, that are that are basically impacting humanity. And so, if I have a group of people, cross disciplinary, from artists to investors to entrepreneurs to you know athletes and tactical athletes, everyone kind of getting together to say, "Hey, let's go solve these big things." That's what gets me fired up.
0: It's great to find your purpose or fuel your curiosity, but is there a mechanism for that? A way for people to know that their path ahead leads to something greater? Uh, a conversation with the gifted Lee Debello gave us that answer in the simplest, sweetest, shortest way.
10: I guess um, assume that you that you are are always missing something. <laughs> That, that whatever you're looking at, whatever you've concluded, that you've missed something and that you should start looking for it.
0: Why that mindset? Why, why did that get so ingrained in you? And, and why have you found the value in that?
10: Because it's always led me to a better idea. And if you can get comfortable with that, it can, it, it can actually be a lot of fun.
0: Dr. Michael Gervais gave us quite an insight on just how powerful purpose is. He also discusses why self-discovery is so fraught with complications and questions why psychology is not central to the process like it should be. Just a side note, Dr. Gervais was absolutely instrumental in helping me personally uncover my purpose, which has guided me on living a more meaningful and hopefully impactful
11: life. What I want to do is I, I, my purpose is really clear. And so I can't, I can't figure out how to meaningfully advance my purpose without partners, without support, without communities, without you know, uh, other people that are switched on about it too. So when I am presenting, if you will, whether it's a and presenting for me is like it conjures up like a keynote or some sort of workshop that I might be given for a company, that's where I feel like the only time I'm presenting and when I'm doing that it is laddered to purpose. And if like, I don't know if you have an intimate loved one or if you have a child or, you know, or a parent for that matter, but if your love for them and is really clear, you'll do whatever it takes. You jump in front of a bus. And so that's how it feels for me when I go on stage, like this purpose really fucking matters to me. And so um, I'm going to come from my most authentic place because that's all I know how to do when the purpose is clear. And anytime I'm not coming from that place, I'm, I'm wrong. And so that it's per being purpose driven. And then um, it keeps me up at night. It's, it's what keeps, you know, like that's the thing that I'm waking up thinking about, like how to build on those axioms that, you know, through relationships will become you know, how do we build the, the right systems in place and the right connections with people to help unlock human potential by helping people live in the present moment more often. Like that is my purpose. Help people live in the present moment more often. Well, shit, we got to train, we got to train our minds. We got to get some frameworks in place for people to go. Oh, I, oh yeah. And part of that is like embracing that. Um, it ain't so good for you sometimes, you know? So like, what is the suffering, you know, like where's your pain and let, let, let's get real now. And so if we can do that together, cause that's what I needed to do. Like I I've crashed and burned too many times and I, I'm not going to fake it till you make it is bullshit, dude. It just doesn't work. And so bringing that into, um, into, uh, the things that keep me up at night and the investment in myself and others, it just feels like what else, what else are we supposed to do? I don't know. Actually
0: curious about this whole perspective on Monday. And I I feel like one of the things we do is we let our internal be so affected by the external. And it kind of sounds like that's the scenario. Like even if you're feeling something, you're not expressing it on Monday. How do you how do you handle that? Like how, how do you not allow the external to impact the internal to the degree most of us allow it to?
11: I think that you're hitting on the essence of the inner work, which is like you build over time the right frameworks um, the right walls, the right internal structures, the right windows, you know, I'm thinking about in my mind, like a really strong based, uh, skyscraper. Like when you build that from a psychological standpoint, it just, it just ends up happening that way. There's a sense of freedom in that. I can sway in the wind. I can be locked and grounded, you know, um, in a way that doesn't get pushed around and a, a more, appropriate analogy versus a uh, a skyscraper is more like an, an ancient tree that has deep roots. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the reasons I love the Aspen trees is because those roots are actually not deep, but they're so intertwined and interconnected with other, with other trees that it is one tree. And so I love the Aspen analogy for humanity is that we are really connected both from a it's going to sound weird, but the stardust standpoint, but also from, you know, the shared experiences in psychology. So to answer your question is when you do the deep internal investment training, who am I, what am I, what are the skills? uh, um, I'm sorry, who am I, what am I, uh, what is my purpose in life? And um, what are the skills I need to experience life in the meaningful way that that, that, that is the essence of psychology. You know, if I make it even more simple, it's self-discovery and psychological skills, those two core components. And I can't imagine why I really have a hard time with this, Sean, like why this is not, this is not a question for you or me, but why do we not invest in, in psychology? You know, like what, what how did we get this so wrong that it's been so taboo for, for centuries? Like think about your parents, your grandparents and their grandparents, like psychology was like for the week. And I mean, I've got a logical answer, but you know, like I just have a hard time understanding why we're not investing properly. And so it's not hard, Sean, it's really not as you know, but it takes time. And, um, the work is scary sometimes, you know, cause you, you, in the self-discovery process, it's like, is that really who I am? Because I I do lie. I do, I do this. I, there's dark sides to all of us and, and to embrace that and to not be overrun by it. And I do get scared. And, you know, I do, I do uh, get embarrassed even though that I don't, I don't want to show those things, but those that's true. So how do I live like in an authentic way where I have these difficult internal emotional experiences matched up with the way that I I want to be, which is strong and available. And, you know, like I want to be strong and kind and kick ass and be reliable and dependable and fill in the blanks, but I've also got these other things that I got to work with too. So how do I do that and be honest in a self-discovery process? That's the hard part. And then on the psychological skills, if I really want to own some psychological skills, that means I got to get on the edge, and the edge is messy. Mm-hmm. To really test those skills and refine those skills, um, I'm going to have to find the razor's edge where, at one point, I could be calm, and then I'm no fucking longer calm. <laughs> you know, like it's on, <laughs> and uh, th- that shit is real and it's scary. And so, I think we most people that are not in that shared language I was talking about with the the Olympics or game changers in business or the arts is they their true purpose is to look good mm-hmm. to be accepted you know as opposed to a first principle of exploring the internal and the external capability that you have and that call it human flourishing call it human potential call it capabilities you know like if what is the true first principle and if you're honest with yourself um really honest with yourself, your life will change when you make that first principle true. When we talk about
0: self-discovery, the key is developing self-awareness. And Jim Detmer gives us an insight into the steps and tools he uses to make self-awareness habitual and a way to keep his progress in mind in all things he does.
12: Yeah. I say to people all the time, I, I'm i pretty familiar with three ways to develop self-awareness. And there might be others, but these three are pretty useful. Um, number one, self-reflection. So I don't have any people who become self-aware without some degree of self or self-reflection. Uh, even, you know, I know you were an elite athlete. I'm not an elite athlete, but I love sports. And like I said, I love pickleball. Well, pickleball has become the fastest growing sport in the world, especially with old farts like me. But, you know, most people just play pickleball casually. And I love to play pickleball casually. But like, I want to grow in self-awareness. So after a pickleball game, I deconstruct my game. How many unforced errors did I have? What percentage of serves did I get in? What percentage of return of serves? Did I get to the kitchen line fast enough? How did I do at the hand speed volley game? I deconstruct my game in order to be self-reflective to grow. So I think if people don't have some sort of self-reflection practice, and there are many, it's impossible to grow in self-awareness. So that's one. A second way to grow in self-awareness is through instruments. Uh, An instrument, the favorite instrument that I use is like the Enneagram. I think it's an incredibly powerful tool for helping people grow in self-awareness. So there are instruments, tools, Myers-Briggs, DISC, Performax, uh, MCMI, (laughs) all those kinds of things. But I think there's a place for tools In growing in self-awareness. There are a couple that I really like. And then the third way you can grow in self-awareness is by creating a feedback-rich environment. Again, most leaders that I know that are transforming and becoming catalytic transformational leaders have a regular practice of self-reflection. They create feedback-rich environments, and they're open to tools that give them a snapshot of their psychology, their physiology, their consciousness, so that they can become more self-reflective. Now, the fourth one, which is becoming more and more standard fare, and it's become part of my life in the last, oh, probably decade or so, is medicine journeys. So psilocybin, MDMA, ayahuasca, peyote, whatever it is, there are things available in the realm of self-awareness, and certainly things way beyond self-awareness that are available in what I would call conscious medicine states that, you know, many people have been doing for millennia, but are becoming more and more main street, you know, since Michael Pollan's book, and since all the work that Tim Ferriss is doing around bringing these things into the world. So I'm now suggesting that might be a fourth, I say there are three, there might be a fourth way to grow in self-awareness that I found personally incredibly valuable. And many, many of the people that I hang out with and work with are using that portal as well. So those would be ways that I think people can grow in self-awareness. So the first question I ask people I coach is, I'll tell them to actually use an app like Mind Jogger or randomly remind me and just program it to ask them seven or eight times throughout the day, where are you? Are you above the line or below the line? And then what's wild is the next question we work on after that is, after you locate yourself, can you accept yourself? So if you notice that you're below the line, which most people start to notice, can you just accept yourself for being exactly where you are? Because high achiever driven people like you would all of a sudden start to say, well, it's not good to be below the line, so I need to be above the line. The majority of the time. So, when you notice that you're below the line, you wouldn't accept yourself. You would judge yourself and criticize yourself for being below the line. But that doesn't work because then you just go further below the line because of your own harsh inner critic. So, self awareness, in my experience, needs to be followed by self acceptance. Those two go together self awareness, self acceptance. Or um, another way you might say that is uh, I, truth needs to be followed by grace. Because oftentimes self-awareness is truth. And sometimes the truth stings, it hurts, it undoes us. And that truth needs to be followed by grace, which is kindness, gentleness, love, understanding. And a lot of leaders need to grow in self-awareness, but most leaders need to grow in self-acceptance. Most great athletes didn't become great athletes by becoming extremely self-accepting. You didn't, you couldn't tolerate mistakes. You couldn't tolerate it if you made a mistake in lacrosse. You deconstructed it, you went back, you used that fuel of competitive drive, self-improvement to get better, 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 better. I never had a let's say a basketball coach who at a timeout after I'd made a critical error in judgment, thrown a bad pass, uh, you know, dropped my coverage in defense, they didn't say to me, "Jim, you just fucked up royally." Now, before we uh improve, can you just accept yourself for having made a mistake?" <laughs> what coach
6: ever yeah, said right. that
12: to you? Especially because Whenever you're below the line, you're just scared. Even at the highest performing level, when you make a mistake, if you're a natural human being, you're going to feel some amount of fear. It could be fear about loss of control or fear about a loss of approval or fear about a loss of security. So underneath making a mistake, like if there was a time you should have, is it called a call to goal in lacrosse? I forget. Is it a goal? Correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, you should have scored a goal and you didn't and you have a reactivity might might be first thing you feel is pissed off. But if we could pause right then and stop the whole world and sit together as two men, I would say, what's underneath your anger right now? And if you sat long enough, you would say fear. I'm afraid we'll lose the game. I'm afraid I'll lose the confidence of my teammate. I'm afraid I'll miss that opportunity the next time. I'm afraid they'll, I won't get a scholarship to the college I want to go to, to play lacrosse. I lived in Baltimore for a while. Johns Hopkins was out there. And they, at least when I was out there many, many years ago, they were like the high point of lacrosse, really, really good. And I might not get a scholarship to Hopkins. Okay, good. Now, again, what I'm saying is once you feel that fear, imagine if a coach took you aside and said, Sean, I want you to know that it's okay to be scared. Your fear is welcome here. This is one of the things we're not teaching in leadership for years. The whole view of leadership was leaders can't be scared. And they can't, for God's sake, they can't tell their followers they're scared. Mm -hmm. I think that's crazy, dog. Leaders are human and they get scared. And here's what happens. If a leader is scared and won't admit that they're scared, Their followers can feel, can literally smell their fear. And then the leader becomes incongruent because they're saying, there's nothing to be scared of. And everybody goes, you have your head so far up your ass, you can't see straight because we ought to have fear. There's healthy fear. Fear is good. But great leaders now can say to their followers, you know, based on our last quarter's performance, I just want you to know, I was awake at three this morning and I had some fear. So if you're scared, you make sense to me. You're not crazy. But here's what I'm doing with my fear. I'm not being paralyzed by it. I'm not being immobilized by it. I'm not going into the deep, dark cavern of fear. I'm using fear to make me pay attention and be awake. So I welcome your fear. And let's use it to pay attention and be awake. If your coach would say, it's okay to be scared, Sean. I just want you to transmute that fear into awakeness and get your learnings from missing that goal. Let's get our learnings, but we don't have to deny our fear. So that's what I mean by below the line. I'm scared. When I'm above the line, I'm in a high state of trust.
0: Now, Antonio Damasio hits the nail on the head on a topic I know most of us get confused about, and that's the difference between feeling and emotion. How do we distinguish the two? Well, let's hear Damasio break it down.
10: Uh, with the, the, the big difference is that emotion, as the name indicates, is about action. It's, it's something that you can actually see. When you see somebody uh, happy, or when you see somebody crying, uh, you see an action. There's theater there. There's a mask. There's movements. Uh, and the movements that are directed to the outside, actually the very root Of emotion, it's actually that it's motion directed to the outside. Uh, So it's it's something that is visible, it's objectifiable. You can can make a videotape of it. You can record sounds. You can do all of that. Um, But feeling is all interior. Feeling is about experience. So when you feel hungry, of course you can. You can have aspects of your body that signify to others that you're hungry. But when you feel hunger or thirst or pain. You're actually having an experience which is in your mind and which is telling you something about your body. So feeling is about experience. It is necessarily subjective. It's your own, it's private. Emotion is public, is is something that is action directed to the outside world. So you couldn't have it more different. Uh, and and yet these two things are constantly co- confused, and people are constantly talking about emotion and feeling and vice versa, which is one great big salad. Uh, and uh, and we need to make this distinction because feelings are very uh, primordial. You know, it's through feeling that we entered the world of consciousness. Feelings are the the, the clear inaugural. Examples of being conscious. The first time that any creature, not human necessarily, felt pain, that feeling was conscious by itself. If it were not conscious, the creature would not have felt it, the creature would not have known. So, the beauty of feeling is that it is automatically, necessarily conscious. It's the beginning of this great big phenomenon in the history of life. And it is giving you knowledge. It's giving you, especially for us now that have a complicated mind and brain uh, helping it, it, it's giving us very precise knowledge about what is going on in your life. And you can act on it. Mm -hmm. And so the the, the great beauty is that when you think about uh, creatures that are very complicated, but at the same time, very simple by comparison to us, like say bacteria, um, you know, they don't even have a, a nucleus. They're, they're simple organisms, but guess what? They have a body. They need to have energy sources to nourish themselves and to, to go through the days of their life that are prescribed in their genome. Uh, they need to be in a good part of whatever territory they're in so that they can get food. They cannot be in a place that is too cold, or too, too hot because the, their bodies may be destroyed. And what they're doing is to navigate, quote unquote, the, the, their universe to be in the place that is most convenient to maintain their lives, which is of course the great issue of homeostasis. They are governing homeostasis, but let's be careful. They're doing all this very intelligently but without knowing they're doing it. That's the great beauty here in these distinctions, is that bacteria and many other simple creatures are intelligent, but the intelligence is is covert. They don't know that they're intelligent. They don't know what they're doing. And yes, they do, yet they do it. Whereas we, and many other creatures, complex creatures before us, because we have the possibility Of through a nervous system, having the possibility of feeling, having the possibility of mapping out the world around us. We have the possibility of doing things about our life that we know we are doing. So when you have pain, you have the possibility of withdrawing from what caused pain in you. And if you're hungry, you can go and eat food. And if you're thirsty, you can drink. And if you have desire, you can. Uh, Act on your desires, you know, all things being equal, (laughs) and with some caution, (laughs) given the laws, Uh, but other other than that, you can do all that. So uh, feeling is the the great, uh, fantastic entry into the world of consciousness and into the world of knowing, uh, which is, of course, what makes the big difference between uh, our own self-governance and the non-self-governance of creatures that don't have this this beautiful apparatus.
0: One of the people who influenced me the most was Dr. Robert Cialdini. And he was kind enough on the show to share his seven principles of influence, which he'll break down now.
13: Let's start with reciprocity because it's very, it, it occurs very early in our uh, interactions with people, uh, even children understand, that you are obligated to give back to others what they first give to you. And we train we train them from childhood in that rule so that people uh, who receive are much more likely to say yes to you after you've given them something. Um, so, this is a suggestion I make to people who want to be influential if you want to go in if you go into a room with a number of people you want to be influential with the people there um, get some assistance or some uh, service from from those people you should not ask yourself first who can help me here The first thing you should ask is whom can I help here who's outcomes can I enhance? Whose circumstances can I elevate? They will stand ready to do the same for you. Second principle is the principle of liking. We've already talked about that one. But one clear way to get people to feel more rapport with us is simply to point to genuine similarities that exist between us. Right. So there was a study done of negotiators who were bargaining over, in, over email. They didn't know anything about each other. Uh, and w- under those circumstances, they were likely to have deadlocked, stymied negotiations where nobody won. Nobody, everybody just walked away with nothing, right? 30% of the time. If before they began the negotiation, They sent information back and forth to one another about their hobbies, their interests, where they grew up, uh, you know, uh, uh, that sort of thing, where they went to school. Stymie negotiations dropped from 30% to 6%. Why? Because inside that information, people encountered commonalities. Oh, really? You're a runner? I'm a runner. You're an only child, I'm an only child. Those were the things that drove the willingness to give the other person grace. So, one of the things we can do before we ever try to influence anybody, identify commonalities, parallels, similarities, and raise them to the surface. Next principle is the principle of social proof. Uh, The idea that when people are uncertain, they don't look inside themselves for answers. They look outside. And one place they look is to their peers, people like them. The next principle is similar in this sense. It's the principle of authority. Another thing we do, another place we look when we're uncertain, is to the opinions of uh, genuinely uh, acknowledged experts in a particular uh, arena. So uh, when uh, there are experts who have uh Opinions that fit with what it is that we are offering or what it is that we are suggesting. We need to find those voices and include them as testimonials in our in any messaging that we use, right? Uh, and the key is, I'm going to say two things. One is, How can you increase the impact of an an expert voice? Multiply it. Find two experts who are saying that what you have or your idea is a good thing, and you multiply the impact as a result. The second thing about it is in your presentation, especially if it's an online presentation, Put those testimonials first. Don't put them in the body of your message or down lower at the end. First, so that that expert authority is there from the outset. So people are believing everything you say from the outset with the aura of authority on your side. Uh, Next principle is uh, the principle of... um, uh, scarcity. Uh, people want more of those things they can have less of. Uh, so, uh, people are very willing to uh, move in our direction to the extent that what we have available to them is scarce, rare, or dwindling in availability. The sixth principle is commitment and consistency. The idea that people want to uh, be consistent with what they have already done, said or done in your presence. So if you can get people to take a small step in your direction, now they will want to be consistent with that in the future. And then finally is the seventh principle of influence, which I've added uh, when I've recognized the power of what we call unity. That is the idea that we share with other people an identity, some kind of social identity, to the extent that if we communicate that shared identity, they consider us one of them. Not like them, one of them.
0: The legendary technologist and futurist Kevin Kelly believes a fundamental mindset shift can transform how we learn and what we do to grow. And that is the concept of failing forward.
14: It's become a little bit of a cliche. It wasn't when I was growing up, but it is now, which is that you um, you fail forward. You, you, you That you um, don't seek failure, but that you embrace failing things not working as a way of moving forward. And um, I think that's a very instrumental thing to, to, to learn, is that... Um, you want to try things and that there is a correlation between quantity and quality when it comes to innovation and making new things and getting better, that you literally have to tr- do enough. So the again, the now cliche, the 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. And the, the thing about deliberate practice is it's not 10,000 hours of practice it's 10,000 hours of deliberate practice and deliberate practice is that where you practice to the point of failure. Okay. So, so you are a kayaker and you're learning kayaking and you're going to the point where you actually fail. You, you make a mistake, You, you, you trip and that deliberate practice where you're kind of going to the edge to the edge of failure is the way forward. And so, um, so that's something that um, transfers into whatever domain you are, whether it's music or sports or inventing things. Um, you're going to try things um, with the idea that they probably aren't going to work out in the beginning, um, and that the the failures that you have are opportunities to kind of get better, and so. Um, uh, it's always going to be a balance because if you just completely fail all the time it's no fun and um it may be a sign that you should try something different so 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 there so so it's an art of having enough successes with your failures to to keep going and so um so so the formula is not really kind of a a formula that um, you can kind of walk into and just do blindly, it still requires part of the art of living of deciding, okay, is, is, is there enough successes to suggest that I should keep going forward?
0: Thus, we round out the best of what has come in 2021. So how we're going to spend our time is the question we need to ask ourselves. And as we end 2021 and leap into 2022, I cannot thank all of you enough for joining me on this learning journey, and I wish all of you a happy and healthy start to your new year. What got you there? What
2: got you